Welcome to the Higher Ed Huddle Hot Off the Press podcast, where we bring the latest higher ed news and stories twice monthly. I'm Joe Trano, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chase Good. We are with Barry Dunn's Higher Education Management and IT Consulting Team. Chase, how are you today? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you? Doing well. On today's podcast, we'll look at the latest student loan forgiveness announcement. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, increasing diversity among some higher education institutions and a story about institutional rankings. So uh, very interesting topics here. Let's uh, dive right in. Um, what do you have for the loan forgiveness story? Yeah, Joe. So to revisit the loan forgiveness uh, topic, I know that was something that we discussed on our previous episode, but there's been some recent updates in the news. So President Biden, um, you know, had the announcement about student loan forgiveness, which kind of changes things um, for those who have student loans right now. So there are a few different parts of this. So the first is that there's going to be $10,000 for student loan forgiveness for individuals making less than $125,000 a year, and as well as the uh, households making less than $250,000 a year. There's also uh, $20,000 in forgiveness for Pell Grant recipients and changes to the repayment plans. So now there's kind of an income-driven repayment plan that allows borrowers with undergraduate debt uh, to be limited to just paying uh, 5% of their discretionary income, and those with uh, graduate debt will be limited to 10% of their discretionary income. And there's also the the aspect of unpaid interest that is no longer going to be capitalized into the loan. So that's kind of going to pre- prevent uh, ballooning debt balances with those with student debt. And um, those with debt under $12,000 will have it forgiven after uh, about 10 years. And now some have said that this can kind of create a bad incentive for colleges and universities, you know, taking the, you know, alternative look at it with students not having to pay or repay loans means there's a stronger case for schools to, you know, raise tuition prices even further. Also, the government can prevent this by requiring um, the schools that accept federal loans, which is basically all of them to keep their tuition costs under a specific market cap. But that's kind of a different topic entirely about price controls Mm -hmm. and price ceilings and things like that. So there's one solution that's come about is what's called a loan repayment assistance program or an LRAP, which is used by a lot of law schools today, which that involves covering, you know, student loan payments if they go into public service or, you know, Mm -hmm. other jobs where there's like a public service aspect um, and allows borrowers to pay just 10% of their discretionary income towards loans for 10 years. And then after that 10-year period, the balance will be forgiven. Now, this style of program for undergraduate loans has even better potential repayment terms, so 5% of income regardless of the debt balance. But there are limits to setting this up and actually how it would function if they're trying to apply it broadly across the higher education landscape. Interesting. I'm curious, uh, what does this mean for borrowers? who've already paid back their loans? Joe, that's a great question because this has definitely caused a lot of turmoil and political you know, division, uh, b- specifically because of how it affects those who have already repaid their payment or repaid their loans. So there was a moratorium that was in place since March of 2020 that's coming to an end, but borrowers have still continued to make payments during that, during that moratorium period, or at least some of them have. And so how it would work with those who have repaid their loans, or at least a portion of them, is that 
say you had $10,000 in loans before the pandemic, and then the moratorium was put in place, and you paid $3,000 off of that $10,000 in the past two years, you would have to apply for a refund through the Department of Education, which would give you the $3,000, but then you would also have to apply um, for an additional student loan refund for the additional um, the additional funds to be forgiven. Um, so it's kind of a two-step process, and it's largely driven by the uh, backlash from the borrowers who had already repaid their loans. And this doesn't apply to anybody who repaid it before that moratorium went into effect. So again, this could be kind of damaging the borrower market and creating poor borrowing habits, but it's something that's definitely on, you know, the, the political agenda and it's causing a lot of discussion and it's something that we really have to be aware of, especially for the long term, because what this could mean moving forward really has a lot of different impl implications. Yeah, it certainly does. And it's it's one of those sensitive topics, you know, and it, it, it really is both uh, politically uh, charged as well as emotionally. You have you have borrowers that have repaid their loans that are upset about this and um, yeah, it's not it's not an easy situation, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about this um, over the coming years. So I'm I'm sure this is just the beginning. So thank you for that story. Uh, what else do you have? You have some diversity stories that are uh, popping up as well. Yeah, so Inside Higher Ed recently reported kind of how diversity enrollment trends are shaping higher education and what, you know, some of the long-term effects of that may be. So the University of California system has really led the way um, in terms of increasing uh, enrollment for uh, diverse student bodies. They had 51, for example, they had 51,000 students enrolled in the system last year. Um, and 35% of those students were Asian and 26% were Hispanic uh, and white, white students accounted for just 20% of that student enrollment. And this is also seen at other, you know, University of California schools, as well as, you know, more uh, prestigious universities or, or kind of exclusive universities like Harvard and Cornell and Amherst, where, you know, they're also seeing their enrollment, you know, become more diverse over time. And now this is being seen among Midwestern universities as well. So, you know, Washington University in St. Louis, Grinnell College and Carleton College have both have all seen their minority enrollments eclipse 50% this year. And this is helping them grow not just their minority enrollments, but their overall student bodies by attracting his Hispanic and international students, which are making up a, a large portion of those uh, new kind of students coming into the college. And so, you know, these schools have continued to target minority students because they see that as a, a primary mechanism to, you know, boost their, you know, uh, their institution's reputation as well as enrollment growth. Um, but this also kind of affects how affirmative action comes into play. So some of these efforts are being considered by the Supreme Court as discriminatory because they're specifically targeting minority students. Even though there are rules in place around affirmative action, it seems to be that some institutions are wanting to abandon some of those structures because of the efforts that they've already, you know, put forth. So, for example, the president of Carleton uh, College said that, you know, they're committed to replacing affirmative action, but they feel now as they've arrived to that point and the Supreme Court could just present a setback 
to some of these things that they're already trying to do and really becoming successful at. So how this plays into affirmative action and whether or not that's going to have effects, you know, throughout the next decade, I think it, w- it will be really interesting. But I think regardless, it's really great to see the increased minority enrollment across, you know, the U.S. And, you know, we hope to see that moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'm happy to hear that, too. So thank you. That's a, that's a great story. And then finally, we, we have a story regarding national rankings, which is kind of interesting. So uh, what do you have there? Yeah. So talking about national rankings, it's really common to hear, you know, really popular ranking bodies such as like the U.S. News Report um, as the the go-to resource when students or, or just people in general are wanting to look, oh, hey, how does this college rank against this one? Or where do I place or where is my college place in, you know, the top 100 or et cetera, et cetera. But the Washington Monthly is really quite different than the U.S. News Report um, specifically because of how they get their information and you know what variables they're looking at. So the U.S. News report kind of got into a little bit of uh, discrepancy with how they're sourcing their information. A lot of it is coming from uh, from reported you know users or from reported students or in, in enrollment bodies and, and things like that. But the Washington Monthly uses publicly available data and that which is relevant to students and policymakers. So variables can include the eight-year graduation rate, the number of Pell Grant recipients, uh, the net price of attendance for families below $75,000 in income, the percent of the student loan principal remaining after five years of graduation, as well as other metrics such as social mobility rank, research rank, and social services ranking scores. And so when you look at the top five schools, you can see some similarities to, you know, the U.S. News and other ranking bodies. So, of course, you've got number one with Stanford University, followed by UPenn, MIT, Princeton, and Duke at number five. So, again, you're you're really well-rounded institutions, high research, uh, or a lot of research volume, large endowments. But then you also see the differences between the different reports once you start going through, you know, the other schools that they've included. So, for example, University of California at Davis is number 11, and the University of Wisconsin at Madison is number 16, and the University of Washington is at 19. So these schools that are often ranked highly on the U.S. News Report have done poorly on the Washington Monthly. So there are six public schools included in the Washington Monthly and only one public school in the U.S. News Report. Some other examples of these discrepancies is Utah State is number 22 in the Washington Monthly Report and number 249 on the U.S. News. Tulane is number 407 on the Washington Monthly and number 42 on U.S. News. And Baylor is number 382 on the Washington Monthly and number 75 on the U.S. News Report. So again, taking into account these other variables and looking at something that's a little bit broader than just, you know, your endowment and how many students you have. I think the Washington Monthly is really trying to accomplish something different with their rankings. And clearly their scores are telling that story. Wow, that's significant. Um, those three examples, the differences between the rankings are significantly different. I think you mentioned that the data, the metrics that are being measured uh, are, are different, right? So we're not comparing apples to apples, right? So what does one do if they're looking at institutions? Who, who do you go by? How, how, do you, how do you go about rectifying that? 
as you're thinking about an individual school? Well, Joe, I think the, the biggest takeaway is that you have to take into account different scores, different metrics, and really determine what criteria is most important to you when you're looking at these different scores. Because one database is not going to have all of the answers. And clearly, the Washington Monthly is putting, you know, other emphasis on different things than the U.S. news report is. So really just looking across the spectrum at these different ranking bodies and trying to evaluate, okay, what are they looking at? And then how does that tie into the score can really kind of, you can see, okay, just because an institution may not have the highest score in one according to one body, it may be very different in another. So you just really have to take all of the different elements into consideration and, you know, use a, a keen eye when you're looking at these kinds of scores. Yeah, that's really, that's a really good perspective. And I think it's, uh, it's a good approach. Thanks. Uh, really great stories this week. And I want to thank you for sharing, uh, sharing the latest news with our listeners. And I guess I'll see you in a, in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Um, so thank you again. Chase. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Joe. For our listeners, if you wish to read more about the news items presented today, please refer to our show notes for the links to these stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Check back in two weeks for more higher ed news from Chase and I. And until then, stay well. Stay well.